Looking for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com slash get100 and use code get100. That's code get100 at prizepicks.com slash get100 for a first deposit matchup to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This is the American Veteran Show. Proud to finally say these two words. Welcome home. Dedicated to those who have worn the uniform. Tremendous national asset. Dedicated to our active duty men and women. They came not as conquerors, but as liberators. Dedicated to presenting issues, topics, and interviews highlighting their commitment to our country. I want to thank the courageous men and women who've served their country in uniform. Less than 1% of the population of our country chooses to serve our country in the military. And the other 99% of us, we owe them. Online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephen Tubbs. Welcome to this week's edition of the American Veteran Show. Thank you so much for your time. And we've got a great show ahead as always. We hope you have made this program a habit as we are well into season six. We could not do programs like this without our presenting sponsor. Thank you to attorney John Boson and his team of attorneys fighting on behalf of veterans every single day. You can find out more about Boson Law at their website, B-O-E-S-E-N, Boson Law, bosonlaw.com or 303-999-9999. Coming up in just a moment, we will kick off this week's edition with what happened, well, Wednesday of last week and a lot of reaction late last week when it comes to Senate Republicans who blocked a bill that would have helped veterans who have been exposed over the years in Iraq and Afghanistan to what they call the toxic burn pits. We will have sound from senators and reaction even from comedian and talk show host and actor John Stewart has been just an incredible advocate for these veterans. So we'll talk about that. Then because of last week and another great response, and thank you so much, as we looked at just a few actors who have served our country. This week, pretty much the rest of the program, we'll look at Major League Baseball players who also have served, especially in World War II, of course. And we've got a a story about a spy in World War II who also played Major League Baseball. We will have that straight ahead. First, we begin with Montana Senator John Tester, a Democrat. He's the chair of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee. Make no mistake about this. The American people are sick and tired of the games that go on in this body. They're sick and tired of us working for Democrats or working for Republicans and not working for the American people. But this is bigger than that. We have an all-volunteer military in this country. If you don't think young people are watching what we're doing today, that are thinking about signing up for the military, you're sadly mistaken. And when we don't take care of our veterans when they come home, they're going to say, why should I ever sign the dotted line? 
Because the promises that I made and the promises that the country made, only half that deal is being respected. My half. This is a sad day in the United States Senate. This is the biggest issue facing our veterans today. Make no mistake about it. If it wasn't, every veteran service organization wouldn't be out there talking to us and have been talking to me for the last 15 years. So we can make up all sorts of excuses about how this is going to move money around, but let me tell you something. We're the ones that decide that. If we want to move money around, we will. If we don't, we won't. In the meantime, let's pass this bill. Let's get veterans the health care they've earned. If it isn't, it's political malpractice. What we're doing today with this policy, by putting this policy off, does nobody any good whatsoever. From the floor of the United States Senate last week, Montana Senator Tester there. Now, of course, you know it. I know it. This is political gamesmanship. This is, of course, about a lot of money. And originally, the first kind of roadblock from Republicans came from Pennsylvania Senator Pat Toomey who objected to the way this bill, known as the PACT Act, that's P-A-C-T, PACT Act, authorizes already about $400 billion in pre-existing veteran spending, or not this bill particularly, but it would authorize another nearly $300 billion. So we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars. But in the end, is anybody remembering the veterans? like this woman outside of the United States Capitol. For 13 years, we've come to our nation's capital with the hope and faith that those we elected into office would fulfill their moral obligation. We organized, we mobilized, we even called on John Stewart and John Field. Together, with those sick and dying, we marched the halls of Congress with their children, with their families. Yesterday, 25 villains, along with Senator Toomey, voted to kill a bill that would provide health care and compensation to several generations of veterans. We've sat here and discussed how many people flipped their vote. What about we pay attention to those that are sick and dying? What about we pay attention to those that are putting a gun to their head because Congress and these senators have screwed them so badly? It's bullshit and it's time for us to pass the PACT Act. No more delays, no more delay tactics. Our veterans are sick and dying, but one thing they will not do is give in to your bullshit tactics. We demand answers. We deserve justice. Let's get one thing straight. We will organize at every one of your district offices. Veterans were not trained to give up. They were trained to fight. We will mobilize our veteran community and we will mobilize America. Senator Toomey, how many veterans are going to die without their treatment because of you and other senators who voted no. Please explain to us what is an acceptable amount of death. That United States veteran mentioned John Stewart. We'll get to him in a moment. But it is, again, politics. And, of course, along many party lines, of course, that exist all the time in D.C., well, most Democrats will do this. Most Republicans will do that. Once again, the pact Act, standing for Promise to Address Comprehensive Toxics Act. Well, apparently late last week, 
There was a deal on health care and environmental policies. You know how all of these things are just seemingly intertwined. Why? In your humble host's estimation, why can't you just talk about an issue, pass it, or don't? Everything is connected. But midweek last week, Democratic leaders, well, they actually talked about health care and the environmental policies. What was the casualty? Well, it was this legislation. Again, John Stewart from last week. Honestly, I don't even know what to say. I've been coming down here 10, 15 years. I'm used to the hypocrisy. Christina Keene will tell you from BFW. They, she sat in an office with Mitch McConnell and a war veteran from Kentucky, and he looked that man in the eyes and he said, we'll, we'll get it done. And he lied to him. Because Mitch McConnell yesterday flipped. I'm used to the lies. I'm used to the hypocrisy. I'm used to all of it. But I am not used to the cruelty. They passed it. June 16th, they passed the PACT Act. 84 to 14. You don't even see those scores in the Senate anymore. They passed it. Every one of these individuals that has been fighting for years, standing on the shoulders of Vietnam veterans who have been fighting for years, standing on the shoulders of Persian Gulf War veterans fighting for years, Desert Storm veterans to just get the health care and benefits that they earned from their service. And I don't care if they were fighting for our freedom. I don't care if they were fighting for the flag. I don't care if they were fighting because they wanted to get out of a drug treatment center or it was jail or the army. I don't give it. They lived up to their oath. And yesterday, they spit on it in abject cruelty. Senator Toomey's not going to hear that because he won't sit down with this man. Because he is a coward. You hear me? A coward. And like I say, I'm used to it. But this type of cruelty on those that we say we hold up as our most valued Americans, then what are we? John Stewart, last week in D.C. We'll have more coming up in our next segment, including a woman who was profiled and sadly she has passed. We are talking about burn pit smoke, the toxins that were in the air that these veterans, young men and women of our military, were breathing in. Many had thought this was going to be landmark legislation. We'll continue to follow the story. In fact, we'll continue coming up in our next segment. Glad you're with us. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Now, back to the American Veteran Show. Here's Stephan Tubbs. Glad you're with us as we continue this Sunday, our first opening segment about the failed legislation, at least for now. Last week with Senate Republicans blocking a bill that would have significantly improved available health care for our men and women, Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. It's all a mess, friends. It is politics at its best. And that is very sad. As we mentioned, many veterans groups for so many months, perhaps years and years, were celebrating this as a potential landmark piece of legislation. It was blocked last week. We'll continue to follow that story and with this, uh, sadly, veteran who now is no longer with us, 
This from ABC News. This week, friends and family are remembering Marine Corps veteran Kate Hendricks Thomas. Her family sharing the news of her passing on Instagram, writing, she accomplished more in this life than many do in a full one. We had the chance to share her story in November of last year. You know, when I see an overly short haircut and somebody who's a little bit wound up, that feels like home. I love I love Marines. She enlisted in the Marine Corps after graduating from college, deploying to Iraq in 2005. It gave me so much opportunities to lead, opportunities to travel the world, a sense of purpose. Kate left the service in 2008. She went back to school, got her Ph.D. in public health, married and had a son. But then, 10 years later, at the age of 38, she went to her doctor for an annual checkup and received devastating news. She sat us down and said, you do have breast cancer. It's stage four. They said it looked like I had been dipped in something. I had metastases throughout my skeletal system from my skull to my toes. Kate then reflected on her time at war. When I checked in at Fallujah, I originally was housed in this area where everybody was cleaning their air conditioners all of the time. We were cleaning this chunky particulate matter out of the filters. I wasn't concerned about it. Again, I was 25 and invincible. That particulate matter, she believed, might have been the product of unfiltered trash fires or burn pits used by the military to dispose of waste, chemicals and plastics, which potentially exposed anyone nearby to clouds of toxic fumes. According to the U.S. Census, Kate was one of 3.8 million service members who deployed post 9-11. Advocates say eight out of 10 of those veterans were exposed to these burn pits, possibly causing serious illnesses. For years, the Veterans Administration hadn't acknowledged that people faced any long-term health risks after being exposed to burn pits, which affected what type of health care or disability they could receive. I went back and forth with the Veterans Administration for three years. Um, they, they denied my claim. They denied appeals. They said, you know, we're not, we're not approving claims for burn pits right now. But the Biden administration says they're working to change that. The administration establishing a new pilot policy for U.S. veterans who have been exposed to burn pits, especially those with constrictive bronchiolitis, lung, and rare respiratory cancers. Currently, veterans have five years after they're discharged or released to make claims related to their service in Afghanistan or Iraq. Last month, the Senate passed the Dr. Kate Hendricks Thomas Act, which expands eligibility for VA mammography screenings to veterans who served in specific areas areas and were exposed to toxic substances. If anything that I have to say helps move the ball forward um, and takes care of the young women that are signing up to, to join the Marine Corps after us, if anything I can say can help them, I'm willing to say it. That from ABC News. As mentioned, we will continue to follow the fate of the PACT Act if this is reintroduced, connected, of course, to something else. But to our Iraq and Afghanistan veterans who may be listening right now, please know so many people care and do not give up. As we continue the rest of the program, because last week and when we featured a few weeks ago, Jim Arness and his role in Gunsmoke, of course, as Matt Dillon, the famous marshal. Well, we looked at last week Hollywood actors, uh, almost the entire program. In fact, it was. Now we're going to talk about some baseball players from World War II who actually put their careers to the side. 
to serve our country. December 7, 1941, 7.48 a.m. Naval Air Forces of the Empire of Japan commenced their attack on U.S. bases at Pearl Harbor, leaving in their wake over a dozen ships sunk or damaged and 2,400 people killed. Americans awoke that day to find their nation at war in a struggle that would test the resolve of every man and woman across the country. That afternoon, Bob Feller, already one of Major League Baseball's top pitchers, was driving from his home in Iowa to Chicago to sign a new contract with the Cleveland Indians. When a bulletin came across the radio announcing the attack on Pearl Harbor, Feller knew exactly what his next move would be. The next morning, he walked into a recruiting station in Chicago to enlist in the United States Navy. A four-time All-Star with a six-figure salary, Feller traded in his Indian's uniform for that of a chief petty officer who earned $80 a month and all the chow he could eat. Major League Baseball was in a golden era in 1941. Jolton Joe DiMaggio had his record 56-game hitting streak. Ted Williams became the last man to bat over 400. Bob Feller won 25 games, and the Yankees beat the bums from Brooklyn to win the World Series. Before long, DiMaggio, Williams, and many other stars from the game followed Feller's lead and entered the military. Many of baseball's then and future stars found themselves involved in some of the pivotal episodes of World War II. Yogi Berra served in the Navy at D-Day. Warren Spahn was a combat engineer who survived the collapse of the bridge at Remagen, while Bob Feller saw action aboard the USS Alabama in both the Atlantic and Pacific theaters. Monty Irvin, a star in the Negro Leagues, who after the war would go on to play for the New York Giants and Chicago Cubs, joined the Army Engineers, serving in France and Germany. Jerry Coleman would win four World Series rings as the second baseman for the Yankees, but during World War II, he was a pilot in the Marine Corps, flying 57 combat missions in the Pacific Theater and earning the Distinguished Flying Cross. Coleman flew another 63 missions in Korea, and retired with the rank of Lieutenant Colonel in the Marine Corps Reserve. A future Hall of Fame slugger for the Pirates, Ralph Kiner served in the Naval Air Corps during World War II, piloting a plane in the Pacific on missions to locate Japanese submarines. Joe Anders was taught to play baseball by shoeless Joe Jackson and was offered a contract by the Yankees in 1942. Instead, he joined the Army, serving for four years and fighting in the South Pacific. Mickey Vernon, the beloved first baseman of the Washington Senators for much of a career that spanned 20 years, joined the Navy. He was sent overseas running sports leagues for his fellow service members in the Pacific. Following the Allies' victory in World War II, many players were able to return to baseball, resuming careers put on hold. Many of baseball's stars came back better than ever. For some, the return to the game was not as easy. Lou Brissy. The bright young prospect before the war was severely wounded while serving with the 88th Infantry Division in Italy. His left shin bone was shattered into 30 pieces, while his left ankle and right foot were broken when he was hit by an artillery shell. The wound was serious enough for his left leg to be amputated, but somehow he managed to convince the doctors to instead put him in an evacuation hospital. 23 operations, three years, and countless hours of rehabilitation later, Brissy made his debut with the Philadelphia Athletics, realizing his dream and making an improbable comeback. While Lou Brissy realized his dreams, others were much less fortunate. Star shortstop Cecil Travis' feet were frozen in the siege of Bastogne 
never allowing him to return to form. Elmer Gideon, who played briefly for the Senators, was killed in France in 1944, while Harry O'Neill died on Iwo Jima in March 1945. Also killed on Iwo Jima was Jimmy Trimble, an outstanding pitching prospect who, like thousands of other young Americans, would never have the opportunity to make his dreams come true. The Major League Baseball players who put their careers and lives on hold to fight in World War II are emblematic of a generation of Americans who put duty and service to their country above all else. All Americans, from sports heroes like Bob Feller and Hollywood actors like Jimmy Stewart to everyday men and women across the country, felt an obligation to do their part in combating the twin evils of Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. We'll continue looking at baseball players who have served their country. That'll come up next and continue throughout this edition of the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Welcome back to the American Veteran Show. We continue now with Stefan Tubbs. For those of us connected with the American Veteran Show, we certainly hope you make us a habit on every Sunday at noon. And don't forget to visit the new and improved website, AmericanVeteranShow.com. And you can hear past episodes. The podcasts are right there, just a few clicks away. We continue the rest of the program looking at baseball players who have served their country. But what about if you served, but you were a spy? More from CBS News. Baseball may just be a sport, but one baseball player may have helped save the world. Mo Berg was an accomplished baseball player for 15 years in the 30s and 40s, but he was also a spy in World War II. Before the CIA, there was an organization called the OSS, and Mo Berg was its star. His life is the focus of a new documentary called The Spy Behind Home Plate. And recently I asked filmmaker Aviva Kempner if Mo Berg was the real-life James Bond. He was in the OSS, and people don't know, but what is in the film, that the creator of James Bond, Ian Fleming, actually helped Wild Bill Donovan develop the whole plan for the OSS. It's a couple scenes in the movie. So the whole aspect of the OSS that would put men and women in, safe crackers, Ivy League people, and someone with brain and brawn like Mo Berg, also created in the input by Ian Fleming, who created James Bond. The OSS, by the way, was the precursor to the CIA, and we didn't have a spy system back then. So Moberg was was kind of like something unique. He spoke 10 languages. He had a law degree, charismatic, a baseball player, a perfect cover to travel the world. And he did just that, promoting baseball alongside some of the greats like Babe Ruth. You know, the joke was he spoke 10, maybe 12 languages, but couldn't hit in any of them. (laughs) But actually, in the 15 years he played, he hit 243, which is a pretty good utility player. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about Babe Ruth, in 1934, there was a very famous trip of an all-star team, except for Mo, he was an all-star, but it was Babe Ruth, Jimmy Fox, Lefty Gomez, Lou Gehring, Charlie Gehringer, all went to Tokyo under the guise of a goodwill trip, but I think it was really America's last chance to sort of reach out to Japan. And when Mo was there, he did a certain clandestine filming of the Tokyo skyline on, I think, his own volition. But you have to see the film to see if he didn't think he had maybe some others encouraging him to do it. And this was footage used later in the Doolittle Raid. 
And so that footage was used by the U.S. military at some point. Well, to scope out, you know, exactly what the skylight, skyline looked like. And they also asked for footage because Lefty Gomez and Jimmy Fox were also taking footage. So uh, the trip may, in a way, help prepare for that. Well, that's the thing is I think that there are a lot of baseball Hall of Famers that have were rightly credited with their contributions to World War II. But I would say that Mo Berg's contributions, as clandestine as they were, may have been as if not more impactful. Well, his role was as a, a spy for nuclear espionage. We were terrified. America was terrified in the Allies. The Germans had the capability to also create a nuclear bomb. We already had started the Manhattan Project, but we didn't know this outstanding physicist who would have had the brains and knowledge to do it, named Heisenberg. Mo was sent on this a clandestine mission to go hear him talk to see and also talk to him after uh, his lecture to see if there's any way the Germans were creating the nuclear bomb because you know it was a race until the end although the final irony was that the German physicists who knew most about how to create a bomb were Jewish and already like Einstein already had left Germany but we still didn't know for sure and Mo was the one that that really secured the knowledge and, you know, sort of did the spying to find out what Heisenberg knew, knew by going to Zurich, pretending he was uh, a Swiss student, and he had a cyanide in one pocket and a gun in another pocket. Werner Heisenberg, uh, the pioneer of quantum mechanics, right. might have been one of the few men in the world that could have taken that fission technology and created a, an atomic bomb. And it was really up to Mo to determine whether or not that was possible. So you had to get in there, pretend to be someone else, be able to speak another language, and have the knowledge to identify the charts as whether or not he was telling the truth, whether or not the Germans were even close to an right. A-bomb. And he had briefed himself. I mean, he had the type of brain who could absorb everything from physics to Sanskrit. So he, he was exactly the right person at the right time for us to use. You tell stories that are the untold stories, more or less, of Jewish heroes right. and their contribution to history. Why did Moberg's story gather your attention as, as great as it did? Well, I grew up in Detroit always hearing about Hank Greenberg. He was my father's hero. And the day I, uh, in hearing about how he almost broke Braver's record and didn't play baseball in Yom Kippur. And the day Hank died, I knew I had to do the film on Hank Greenberg. Mo presented itself another way. Uh, someone who had been a minor funder of my other films said to me one day, Aviva, do a film about Sid Luckman, who was the Jewish football player. And I said, Bill, I don't like football. And he says, what about Barney Ross? And I said, uh, I, I hate boxing more, a Jewish boxer. But when he said, Mo Berg, I love baseball. And I said, I've got to do it. Here we combine, you know, again, the golden age of baseball, which I'm fixated on. Uh, someone who used his cleverness and his wit and also his knowledge of languages to spy on the Germans. And I don't think people know enough about the Manhattan Project because it was so secret, but sort of the spies that went along with it. And it's just great to be able to tell the story of Mo Berg, who sacrificed not only his life, but also his professional baseball coaching career to go off and spy for us. 
sounds like a great story until you actually have to go in there and do the research. And now you're talking about someone that passed away 50 years ago, didn't leave any children behind. In the 30s and 40s, any kind of documentation for his would have been burned up, erased, eliminated. And on top of that, he was literally a spy. So how do you do the research? How difficult was it to research this? Well, I benefited from three things. One is the fact that 30 years ago, two filmmakers, Neil Goldstein and Jerry Feldman, were trying to make a film on Mo and film people like Dom DiMaggio, people Mo played with, and like William Colby, people who were in the OSS or spied with them. And I was able to process those interviews and use them in the film. Second of all, the OSS documents have been declassified, so they're more accessible. But third of all, even though Mo didn't marry his siblings, um, kept a lot of his documents, and between the Columbia Law Library, Princeton Library, New York Public Library, Cooperstown, his cousin Erwin Berg, I, I assure you, there's a lot more pictures in libraries. Um, there's so many scenes in the film that show him at different times, not so much talking, but him in certain places, and he's always sort of like the chameleon in the back. Huh. And uh, I think that's a lot what Mo was. He was sort of observing the scene and then figuring out what could be done cleverly to get to the next step. And this was a time when anti-Semitism was rampant. He was one of the first Jewish people to actually uh, uh, participate in an Ivy League school, as a matter of fact. Um, but his... that's actually where he faced the anti-Semitism. At Princeton, there was this whole thing about Jews were called Hebrews, couldn't uh, participate in the dining clubs. Although since he was a star in the f baseball team, they did let him be there, but they wouldn't let others there. In a way... Mo did not face the anti-Semitism that I saw evident in making the Hank Greenberg film, because every time Hank went up to bat, there was someone on the opposing team or in the stands yelling at him. But still, Mo had a very restrictive time at Princeton because he was Jewish. Do you think that his motives were driven by his love for his heritage or his love for his country? I think Mo was... Um, I think Mo's motive to spy for the U.S. was both based on the fact of what he knew Nazism was about and how especially it affected his people. But most of all, it was because he was a proud American. He was the son of immigrants. And by the way, we talk about immigrants should be let in this country. Do you know who made the best spies during World War II for us? The ones who knew the languages of Europe of course. or, of course, Asia. The ones who knew the customs, the clothing. You know, I, I just really... I realized in making this film how important immigrants are to, God forbid, you know, right now we worry about the nuclear mm. power of North, North Korea, of the Middle East, of, of Russia. Who are the spies now? Well, the, uh, the documentary is called The Spy Behind Home Plate. Uh, filmmaker Aviva Kempner, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us. And it's open now in the greater New York area as of this weekend. And if you want to find out where else in the country it is, you can go to spybehindhomeplate.org. Interesting story from CBS News. We'll wrap up the program with, again, a look at those baseball players who put their young lives to the side as far as their baseball careers because they served their country. Coming up, you're going to hear from one of my all-time baseball heroes, and I got to meet him in person once. Colonel Jerry Coleman, United States Marine Corps, both in World War II and in Korea. We'll talk about that coming up next as we wrap up the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. This is the American Veteran Show, online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephen Tubbs. 
We wrap up the American Veterans Show with a couple more pieces on Major League Baseball players that paused their career during World War II. And perhaps no one epitomizes an athlete who put things on hold when his country needed him most. That man, Ted Williams, he had just won the Triple Crown in 1942. He enrolled in Naval Flight School in November. The great hitter soon developed into a great pilot. And perhaps surprisingly, the ornery star took to the military life like a natural. The truth is he was a very structured person and in fact thrived on being structured. He never had a problem with anybody over him, never had a problem with an officer. Ted came there to Chapel Hill and we all standing around watching it to pre-flight and he just electrified everything he did. Coordination, you know, is, is important in flying. You gotta get the feel of the airplane and he had that damn cold. Williams spent three years in the service, eventually becoming a flight school instructor. By the time he returned to the Red Sox in 1946, he was a more mature 27 years old. And the new, friendlier Ted Williams was a hit with the Boston press and fans alike. After the season, Williams was awarded his first MVP and in the years to come would win another, as well as a second Triple Crown and four more batting titles. Williams remained comfortable, though, in the batter's box, winning his second MVP award in 1949. But soon, his career was again interrupted by war, as the U.S. entered the conflict in Korea. A bunch of time had passed since World War II, and Ted Williams hadn't flown one plane since he left the service. And now they're called to fly jets that, that none of them knew how to fly. After spending nearly the entire 1952 season retraining in flight school, Williams landed for duty in Korea in February 1953. Williams began flying combat missions just after his arrival. And in one of his first runs, his plane found enemy fire. So I'm up about 18,000 feet now, and I felt like any minute I'm going to have to bail out of this son of a bitch. So all of a sudden, this plane right behind me, little Lieutenant Hawkins, young kid, he led me back to the field, and in the meantime, he's calling in, telling that, you know, he has a plane with him that's smoking. All the Marines are in the air. <laughs> Big explosion in the plane. And all this fire and smoke was underneath me, see? I didn't have my brakes, didn't have my wheels down. And I had nothing to slow me down. All I'm thinking about is getting on the deck. And I never will forget, as I was coming in, I'm on fire. 30 feet of fire going up behind my ass, see? And I hit the runway, and I skidded one mile up the runway. So I was really coming in fast. And I'm saying to myself, when is this dirty son of a bitch going to stop? That's all I said. You, when is this dirty son of a bitch? And if I ever prayed in my life, the only goddamn thing I said, well, there's a goddamn Christ. It's the time old Teddy Ballgame needs you. But he landed on the stomach of the plane. Having completed serving his country for the second time in the Marine Air Corps, Ted Williams once again prepares to return to play baseball. 
Ted, I understand that your future address is Fenway Park. Is that correct? Well, as of now, that's where I'm scheduled to go, Colonel. I uh, plan on being up there tomorrow. And uh, needless to say, I'm, I'm anxious to see if I can still hit. That from PBS. And as we wrap up with our look at these heroes, baseball players, but great American patriots first, we talk about one of my heroes, the longtime San Diego Padres broadcaster Jerry Coleman. Had a chance to meet him one time, and it was just outstanding. Called him Colonel because he was. Jerry Coleman would manage the San Diego Padres for one year. He was a broadcaster. They wanted him back uh, on the field to maybe see if they could turn things around. He couldn't. So he goes back up to the broadcast booth. But he was an MVP in the World Series, a star second baseman for the New York Yankees. Jerry Coleman passed away several years ago. But what a patriot. No, I was dumb enough to think I'd give up these two years and be right back where I was. I never came back to what I was, which doesn't bother me in the least, I'll be very honest with you. But basically, I was always proud to be a Marine Naval aviator. And uh, frankly, uh, it never entered my mind to think that I wasn't going to be as good as I was before. I found out later that I wasn't as good as I was before. But uh, those are the kinds of things. I mean, you, you, you play baseball against your country. It's not a contest. Your country comes first, period. John, you actually put up good numbers with uh, Chicago when you, when you came out of the war. True. Um, in terms of the opportunities presented to you, obviously baseball, Major League Baseball, was just integrating at that point in time. Did a door just not open for you? Not really. Uh, I'm trying to think back during that time when Jackie went in. It, it, was, it was hard, and everybody was asking whether you think Jackie would make it. I said, sure, I think he's going to make it. Because Jack, could, he could take the pressure. He could withstand the pressure. And he, could, he could do a lot of things. And uh, I think if I had the uh, same opportunity to do, I'd do the same thing that Jack did. I, I would get angry, but I would turn up the cheek and go ahead on. And then not try to uh, intimidate anybody or cause trouble. Because that was a no-no. When Ricky hired him, he said, Jack, you, you have to do and say no a lot of things. And he did. And I would do the same thing. Yeah, I haven't analyzed how the Bible what went on. That was life. I understood, like I said, I understood where life was going, and I accepted it. And today, it has changed a lot. But I'm not complaining. I'm just explaining. Hope you've enjoyed over the past couple of episodes. Last week, Hollywood stars that have served their country, and this week, with baseball stars that put their careers on hold for both World War II and Korea. And how about? Jerry Coleman, and Ted Williams. Ted Williams, the more maybe recognizable name, but both of those incredible baseball players not only served in World War II, but Korea as well. Hope you've enjoyed that. And we wrap up the program. The United Launch Alliance has a new atlas. Let's take a listen. Generating a combined liftoff thrust of 1.5 million pounds, the RD-180 engine two solid rocket boosters ignite to start ULA's Atlas V rocket on its trip to orbit. Shortly after liftoff, Atlas begins a pitchover to attain the proper flight path while minimizing the dynamic pressure the rocket experiences during flight. Then, Atlas V reaches Mach 1 at the speed of sound. 
Within the next two minutes of first stage flight, the Atlas V rocket will more than triple its velocity, following jettison of the two Gem 63 solid rocket boosters. Fighting against the force of gravity, the nearly one million pound rocket depletes the majority of its propellant. The main engine then shuts down, followed by release of the booster stage. The rocket now weighs a little more than 7% of what it did at liftoff. To deliver Sibir's Geo-6 to orbit, Centaur will perform three engine burns. Fueled by liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen, the first burn takes the spacecraft orbital, reaching a LEO parking orbit. Then, once the rocket has climbed above the densest part of Earth's atmosphere, the payload fairing is jettisoned. After the first main engine cutoff, Centaur coasts around to the destination argument, or celestial longitude. The second burn then kicks the trajectory onto a geosynchronous transfer orbit with a maximum altitude in the geo belt. Following a multi-hour coast, Centaur comes alive for a final burn as it prepares to release the Sibir spacecraft into a highly customized, enhanced, high-energy GTO orbit. Nearing end of mission, Centaur executes a guidance-commanded shutdown to complete the final burn, a capability which ensures precise orbit injection. More than three hours after liftoff, Centaur releases the sixth Sibir's Geo satellite for the United States Space Force, providing early missile warning detection. Always love space and will continue to follow, and of course, a huge Colorado connection with our space corridor and what ULA does. That wraps up this week. Who knows what kind of look we'll take uh, from veterans who have done other things in their life. I mean, it's a perfect summertime kind of topic, and we certainly appreciate you listening here on the American Veteran Show. For our incredible producer, Michael Arpaio, Stefan Tubbs wishing you a great week ahead. Join us for the regular program tomorrow and Monday through Friday, 3 to 7 p.m. Have a great week, and remember our troops. The American Veteran Show is a copyrighted production of Mountain Time Media Group, LLC. All rights reserved. For more information, visit AmericanVeteranShow.com. Join us next week for another edition of The American Veteran Show. Searching for last-minute gifts? Shop the last-minute deal sale at Virginia ABC and save 20% on select 750-milliliter bottles. That's 20% off gifts for the hard to shop for, 20% off gifts guaranteed to fit, 20% off gifts to celebrate the season, and 20% off a little gift for yourself. Shop the last-minute deal sale at Virginia ABC, in stores and online, now through December 21st. Please sip responsibly. 